Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 666. The Windigo, Chapter 5 by Algernon Blackwood For a man of his years and inexperience, only Canny Scott, perhaps, grounded in common sense and established in logic, could have preserved even the measure of balance that this youth somehow or other did manage to preserve through the whole adventure. Otherwise, two things he presently noticed, while foraging pluckily ahead, must have set him headlong back to the comparative safety of his tent. Instead of only making his hands close more tightly upon the rifle stock, while his heart, trained for the wee kirk, sent a wordless prayer winging its way to heaven, both tracks he saw had undergone a change, and this change so far as it concerned the footsteps of the man was in some undecipherable manner appalling. It was in the bigger tracks he noticed this, and for a long time he could not quite believe his eyes. Was it the blown leaves that produced odd effects of light and shade, or that the dry snow and drifting like finely ground rice about the edges cast shadows and highlights? Or was it actually the fact that the great marks had become faintly colored? For round about the deep lunging holes of an animal, there now appeared a mysterious reddish tinge that was more like an effect of light than anything that dyed the substance of the snow itself. Every mark had it, and had it increasingly, this indistinct fiery tinge that painted a new touch of ghastliness into the picture. But when wholly unable to explain or to credit, it turned his attention to the other tracks to discover if they too bore similar witness. He noticed that these had meanwhile undergone a change that was infinitely worse, and charged with far more horrible suggestion. For in the last hundred yards or so, he saw that they had grown gradually into the semblance of the parent tread. Impercatably, the change had come about, yet unmistakably. It was hard to see where the change first began. The result, however, was beyond question. Smaller, neater, more cleanly modeled, they formed now an exact and careful duplicate of the larger tracks besides them. The feet that produced them had, therefore, also changed, and something in his mind reared up the loathing and with terror as he saw it. Simpson, for the first time, hesitated. Then, ashamed of his alarm and indecision, took a few hurried steps ahead. The next instant stopped dead in his tracks. Immediately in front of him, all signs of the trail ceased. Both tracks came to an abrupt end on all sides. For a hundred yards and more, he searched in vain for the least indication of their continuance. There was nothing. The trees were very thick just there, big trees, all of them, spruce, cedar, hemlock, there was no underbrush. He stood, looking about him, all distraught, bereft of any power of judgment. Then he set to work to search again, and again, and yet again, but always with the same result. Nothing. The feet that printed the surface of the snow thus far had now apparently left the ground, and it was in that moment of distress and confusion that the whip of terror laid its most nicely calculated lash about his heart. It dropped with deadly effect upon the sorest spot of all, Completely unnerving him, he had been secretly dreading all the time that it would come, and come it did. Far overhead, muted by great height and distance, strangely thinning and wailing, he heard the voice of Defago, the guide. The sound dropped upon him out of that still, wintry sky with an effect of dismay and terror unsuppressed. 
The rifle fell to his feet. He stood motionless an instant, listening as it were with his whole body, then staggered back again the nearest tree for support. Disorganized, hopelessly in mind and spirit, to him in that moment it seemed the most shattering and dislocating experience he had ever known, so that his heart emptied itself of all the feeling whatsoever, as by sudden draught. Oh, oh, this fiery height, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire, ran in far beseeching accents of indescribable appeal this voice of anguish down from the sky, whence it called then silenced through all the listening wilderness of trees. And Simpson, scarcely knowing what he did, presently found himself running wildly to the fro, searching, calling, tripping over roots and boulders, flinging himself in a frenzy of undirected pursuit after the caller, behind the screen of memory and emotion with which experience veils events, he plunged distracted and half-deranged, picking up false lights like a ship at sea, tear in his eyes and heart and soul, for the panic of the wilderness had called to him, in that far voice, the power of untamed distance, the enticement of the dissolution that destroys. He knew in that moment all the pains of someone hopelessly and irrelevantly lost, suffering the lust and trivial of a soul in the final loneliness. A version of Divago, eternally hunted, driven, and pursued across the sky, vastness of those ancient forests, fled like a flame across the dark ruin of his thoughts. It seemed ages before he could find anything in the chaos of his disorganized sensations to which he could anchor himself, steady for a moment, and think. The cry was not repeated, his own hoarse calling brought no response, the inscrutable forces of the wild had summoned their victim beyond recall, and held him fast. Yet he searched and called, it seems, for hours afterwards, for it was late in the afternoon, when at length he decided to abandon a useless pursuit and return to his camp on the shores of Fifty Island Water. Even then he went in with reluctance, that crying voice still echoing in his ears, with difficulty he found his rifle and homeward trail. The concentration necessary to follow badly blazed trees and biting hunger that gnawed helped to keep his mind steady. Otherwise, he admits the temporary aberration he had suffered might have been prolonged to the point of positive disaster. Gradually, the ballast shift backed again, and he regained something that approached his normal equilibrium. But for all the journey through, the gathering dusk was miserably haunted. He heard inaudible following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concentrated attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He stealthily tried hiding where possible and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto protective of covering merely and now becoming menacing and challenging, and in his frightened mind asked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. The presentment of the nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. It was really admirable how he emerged victor in the end. Men of riper powers and experience might have come through the ordeal with less success. He had himself tolerably well in hand, all things considered, and his plan of action proves it. Sleep being absolutely out of the question, traveling an unknown trail in the darkness being equally as bad. He sat up the whole of the night, rifle in hand before a fire he never for a single moment allowed to die down. The severity of the haunted vigil marked his soul for life. But it was successfully accomplished and with the very first signs of dawn 
he set forth upon the long return journey to the home camp to get help. As before, he left a written note to explain his absence and to indicate where he had left a plentiful cache of food and matches, though he had no expectation that any human hands would find them. How Simpson found his way home alone by the lake and forest might well make a story in itself, for to hear him tell it is no to the passionate loneliness of soul when the wilderness holds him in the hollow, illuminated hand and laughs. It is also to admire his indomitable pluck. He claims no skill, declaring that he followed the almost invisible trail mechanically and without thinking, and this doubtless is the truth. He relied upon the guiding of the unconscious mind, which is instinct, perhaps to some sense of the orientation known to animals and primitive men, may have helped as well. For all that tangled region, he succeeded in reaching the exact spot where Defago had hidden the canoe nearly three days before with the remark, strike due west across the lake into the sun to find the camp. There was not much sun left to guide him, but he used the compass to the best of his ability, embarking the frail craft for the last twelve miles of his journey with a sensation of immense relief, and the forest was at last behind him. And unfortunately the water was calm, he took his line across the center of the lake instead of coasting around the shores for another twenty miles. Fortunately, too, the other hunters were back, the light of their fires furnished a steering point without which he may have searched all night long for the actual position of the camp. It was close upon midnight all the same when his canoe grated the sandy cove and Hank and Punk and his uncle, disturbed in their sleep by his cries, ran quickly down and helped a very exhausted and broken specimen of scotch humanity over the rocks towards a dying fire. Chapter 6 the sudden entrance of his Prozac uncle into this world of wizardry and horror that had haunted him without interruption now for two days and two nights had the immediate effect of giving to the affair an entirely new aspect. The sound of that crisp, hello my boy, and what's up now? And the grasp of that dry and vigorous hand introduced another standard of judgment. A revulsion of feeling washed through him, he realized that he had let himself go rather badly. He even felt vaguely ashamed of himself. The native hardiness of his race reclaimed him. And this doubtless explains why he found it so hard to tell the group round the fire everything. He told enough, however, for the immediate decision to be arrived at a relief party must start at the earliest possible moment, and that Simpson, in order to guide it capably, must first have food and above all sleep. Dr. Cathcart, observing the lad's condition more assuredly than his patient knew, gave him a very slight injection of morphine. For six hours he slept like the dead. From the description carefully written out afterwards by the student of divinity, it, it appears the account he gave to the astonishing group omitted sundry vital and important details. He declares that with his uncle's wholesome matter-of-fact countenance staring him in the face, he simply had not the courage to mention them. Thus all the search party gathered, it would seem, was that Defago had suffered in the night an acute and unexplicable attack of mania, had imagined himself called by someone or something, and had plunged into the bush after it without food or rifle, where he must die a horrible and lingering death by cold and starvation, lest he could be found and rescued in time. In time, moreover, meant at once. In the course of the following day, however, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge with the instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true inwardness without divining that it was very drawn out of him as a matter of fact by a very subtle 
form of cross-examination by the time they reached the beginning of the trail, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey. He had mentioned how Defago spoke vaguely of something he called a windigo. Now he cried in his sleep how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He also admitted the bewilderingly effect of that odor upon himself pungent and acrid like the odor of lions and by the time they were within an easy hour of fifty island water he had let slip the further fact of foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition as he felt afterwards that he had heard the vanished guide call for help he omitted the singular phrase used for he simply could not bring himself to repeat the prestigious language also while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeliness of the animal's plunging tracks, he left out the fact that they measured a wholly incredible distance. It seemed a question nicely balanced between individual pride and honestly what he should reveal and what suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling the body and bed had been partly dragged out of the tent with the net result that Dr. Coscart, adroit psychologist that he fancied himself to be, had assured him clearly enough exactly where his mind, influenced by loneliness, bewilderment, and terror, had yielded to the strain and invited delusion. While praising his conduct, he managed at the same time to point out where, when, and how his mind had gone astray. He made his nephew think himself finer than he was way by prejudiced praise, yet more foolish than he was by minimizing the value of the evidence. Like many other materialists that he is, he lied cleverly on the basis of insufficient knowledge because the knowledge supplied seemed to his own particular intelligence admissible. The spell of these terrible solitudes, he said, cannot leave any mind untouched, any mind that is possessed of the higher imaginative qualities. It has worked upon yours exactly as it worked upon my own when I was your age. The, ma the animal that hunted your little camp was undoubtedly a moose, for the belling of a moose may have sometimes a very particular quality of sound. The colored appearance of the big tracks was obviously a defect of vision in your own eyes produced by excitement. The size and stretch of the tracks we shall prove when we come to them, but the hallucination of an audible voice, of course, is one of the commonest forms of delusion due to mental excitement. An excitement, my dear boy, perfectly excusable, and let me add, wonderfully controlled, by you under the circumstances. For the rest, I am bound to say you have acted with a splendid courage for the terror of feeling oneself lost in the wilderness is nothing short of awful, and had I been in your place, I don't for a moment believe I could have behaved with one quarter of your wisdom and decision. The one thing I find it uncommonly difficult to explain is that damned odor. It made me feel sick, I assure you, declared his nephew, positively dizzy. His uncle's attitude of calm omniscience, merely because he knew more psychological formula, made him slightly defiant. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of an experience one has not personally witnessed. A kind of desolate and terrible odor is the only way I can describe it, he concluded, glancing at the features of the quiet, unemotional man beside him. I can only marvel. I can only marvel, was the reply. That under the circumstances it did not seem to you even worse the dry words simpson knew hovered between the truth and his uncle's interpretation of the truth and so at the last they came to the little camp and found the tent still standing the remains of the fire and the piece of the paper pinned to a stake besides it untouched 
The cache poorly contravened by the inexperienced hands, however, had been discovered and opened by muskrats, mink, and squirrel. The matches lay scattered upon the opening, but the food had been taken to the last crumb. "'Well, fellers, he ain't here,' exclaimed Hank loudly after his fashion. "'And that's as certain as this cold supply down below. "'But where he's got to go by the time is about as understained "'as the trade in the crowns in the other place. "'The presence of divinity students was no barrier to his language at such time. "'Through the reader's sake, it may be severely edited. "'I propose,' he added, that we start at once and hunt for him like hell. The gloom of Defago's probable fate oppressed the whole party with a sense of dreadful gravity. The moment they saw the familiar signs of recent occupancy, especially the tent, with the bed of balsam branches still smooth and flattened by the pressure of his body, seemed to bring his presence near to them. Simpson, feeling vaguely as if his world were somehow at stake, went about splaying particulars in a hushed tone. He was much calmer now, though overwearied with the strain of his many journeys, his uncle's method of explaining explaining away, rather, the details still fresh in his haunted memory helped too, to put ice upon his emotions. And that's the direction he ran off in, he said to his two companions, pointing in the direction where the guide had vanished that morning in the grey dawn, straight down where he ran like a deer in between the birch and the hemlock. Hank and Dr. Cathcart exclaimed Hank and Dr. Cathcart exchanged glances, and it was about two miles down there, in a straight line, continued the other speaking with something of the former terror in his voice, that I followed his trail to the place where where it stopped it stopped dead, and where you heard him calling and caught the stench in it and all the rest of the wicked entertainment. And where you heard him calling and caught the stench and all the rest of the wicked entertainment, cried Hank with vulgarity that betrayed his keen distress, and where your excitement overcame you to the point of pursuing delusions, and where your excitement overcame you to the point of producing illusions, added Dr. Cathcart under his breath, yet not so low that his nephew did not hear it. It was earlier in the afternoon, for they had traveled quickly, and they were still a good two hours of daylight left. Dr. Cathcart and Hank lost no time in beginning the search, but Simpson was too exhausted to accompany them. They would follow the blaze marks on the trees and where possible his footsteps. Meanwhile, the best thing he could do was to keep a fire going and rest. But after something like three hours search, the darkness already down, the two men returned to camp with nothing to report. Fresh snow had covered all the signs, and though they had followed the blaze trees to the spot where Simpson had turned back, they had not discovered the smallest indication of a human being or that, that matter of fact of an animal. There were no fresh tracks of any kind. The snow lay undisturbed. It was difficult to know what was best to do, though in reality there was nothing more they could do. They might stay the search for weeks without much chance of success. The fresh snow destroyed their only hope, and they gathered around the fire for supper, a gloomy, despondent party. The facts indeed were sad enough for Defago had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth in all of its ugliness was out, it seemed useless to deal in further disguise or pretense. They talked openly of the facts and probabilities. It was not the first time, even in the experience of Dr. Cathcart, that a man had yielded to the singular seduction of the solitudes and gone out of his mind. Defago, moreover, was predisposed to something of that sort, for he already had a touch of melancholy in his blood, 
and his fiber was weakened by bouts of drinking that often lasted for weeks at a time. Something on this trip, one might never know precisely what, had sufficed to push him over the line, that was all, and he had gone, gone off into the great wilderness of trees and lakes to die by starvation and exhaustion. The chances against his finding camp again were overwhelming. The delirium that was upon him would also doubtless have increased, and it was quite likely he might do violence to himself, and so hasten his cruel fate. Even while they talked indeed, the end had probably come. On a suggestion of Hank, his old pal, however, they proposed to wait a little longer and devote the whole of the following day from dawn to darkness to the most systematic search they could devise. They would divide the territory between them, they discussed their plan in great detail, all the men could do, they would do, and meanwhile they talked about the particular form in which the singular panic of the wilderness had made its attack upon the mind of the unfortunate guide. Hank, though familiar with the legend in its general outline, obviously did not welcome the turn the conversation had taken. He contributed little, though that little was illuminating, for he admitted that a story ran over all the section of country effect that several Indians had seen the Wendigo along the shores of the Fifty Island Water in the fall of last year, and that this was the true reason for Defago's disclination to hunt here. Hank doubtless felt that he had, in a sense, helped his old pal to death by over-persuading him. When an Indian goes crazy, he explained, talking to himself more than to the others, it seemed. It's always about that. He's seen the Wendigo, and poor old Defago was superstitious down to his very heels. Then Simpson, feeling the atmosphere was more sympathetic, told over again the full story of his astonishing tale. He left out no details this time. He mentioned his own sensations and gripping fears. He only admitted the strange language used. But Defago surely had already told you all these details of the Wendigo legend, my dear fellow, insisted the doctor. I mean, he had talked about it and thus put into your mind the ideas which your own excitement afterwards developed. Whereupon Simpson again repeated the facts. Defago, he declared, had barely mentioned the beast. He, Simpson, knew nothing of the story and so far as he remembered and never even read about it. Even the word was unfamiliar. Of course he was telling the truth, and Dr. Cathcart was reluctantly compelled to admit the singular character of the whole affair. He did not do this in words so much as in manner, however. He kept his back against a good stout tree. He poked the fire into the blaze a moment it showed signs of dying down. He was quicker than any of them to notice the least of sounds in the night about them. A fish jumping in the lake, a twig snapping in the bush, the dropping of occasional fragments of frozen snow from the branches overheard where the heat loosened them. His voice, too, his voice too, changed a little in quality, becoming a shade less confident, lower also in tone, fear to put it plainly, hovered close about that little camp, and though all three would have been glad to speak of other matters, the only thing they seemed able to discuss was this, this the source of their fear. They tried other subjects in vain. There was nothing to say about them. Hank was the most honest of the group. He said next to nothing. He never once, however, turned his back to the darkness. His face was always to the forest, and when wood was needed, he didn't go farther than necessary to get it. All right, everyone, we're finally at our exit 666. Grab your things, unbuckle that seatbelt, and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.